Well, I want us uh, to continue our look at the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to Acts chapter 18. But we're going to be talking about authenticity. And I don't know about you, but that word authenticity uh, really kind of makes me feel uneasy. It's, it's a word that uh, kind of beckons us to a deeper place in our relationship with God. An authentic place. Authenticity. It compels us to move beyond the superficial and into a place of transparency and sincerity and honesty and genuineness, authenticity. We don't like to go there because it takes faith and it exposes our fears. It's easier to walk by sight than it is to truly live by faith every day. And uh, so authenticity, you know, on some level, none of us are purely authentic all the time because even though... If you've trusted Christ, you're a new creation in Him. You're in Christ now. You're a part of the family of God. You still have that old fleshly nature that's still there that sort of is warring against the Spirit, as Paul talks about in Galatians 5. So, you know, 100% pure authenticity 100% of the time won't be available until we leave this earth and we have our glorified bodies. But that's the goal. The goal is to be authentic. Uh, and since we all struggle with authenticity, we, we find it easier sometimes just to kind of keep going through the motions, to just keep doing the next thing, living life without truly tapping into that place of the fullness of joy and that vibrant relationship with Christ. But authenticity, as we're going to see this morning in the life of Paul, can be a real life changer, not just for those of us who immediately come in contact with us and see a genuineness in our faith but there's a ripple effect and i want to illustrate the value of authenticity with a, a short video uh, it's about three and a half minutes uh, and i want to give this caveat though before i show it uh, i think those of you that have been around plum creek chapel or not by works ministries very long at all know that we're passionate about the clarity accuracy and urgency of the gospel and that means being clear in the words that we use to describe the gospel. And so I try to avoid when describing how someone gets saved, phrases like give your life to Christ or invite Jesus into your heart or things like that, that the Bible never sp speaks in those terms. We don't get saved because we give something to Jesus. We get saved because Jesus gives something to us, namely forgiveness and eternal life. And so there's one giver and one receiver when it comes to eternal salvation. God's the giver, we're the receiver. But yet we use those terms. And in this video clip, it's so well produced, I love it, but it does kind of have different ways of describing that, that opportunity that people had to get saved. And I just wanted to kind of give that, that caveat. But it shows, really, the, 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 how living a genuine, authentic life can ultimately be the difference maker in life in general with other people. So... Let's uh, watch as we show this short video. This is Nate. Nate became a Christ follower two weeks ago and is still a bit giddy about it. Now he's trying not to do cartwheels in public. Nate became a believer partly because of Kim. Yet oddly enough, Kim and Nate have never met. Now, is this possible? Well, let's take a look. 
Kim loved Jesus from an early age, and in college she had a huge impact on her friends. While most of her peers used their college years to, well, experiment, Kim didn't. She remained committed to her faith, and it showed. It especially showed to Lisa, her roommate, who confessed to Kim that she wanted whatever it was that made Kim so strong. Kim shared her faith with Lisa, and Lisa believed. Years later, at Lisa's first real job, she met Thomas. Thomas was hit by a drunk driver when he was 13 and still carried a lot of anger and bitterness. Thomas and Lisa became friends. It wasn't long before he started going to church with Lisa and her husband. After a lot of studying and searching, Thomas gave his life to Christ. Fast forward a few years. Thomas became a public speaker and was often asked to speak at large events. See, when he became a believer, Thomas developed a new perspective on life. He stopped resenting what had been taken from him and started being thankful for the second chance he had been given. On one particular day, Thomas shared about overcoming hardship and what it means to choose joy. He was so passionate that a number of people were inspired to share a link to his video. The video of Thomas inspired James, too. And if anyone needed inspiration, it was him. James had a ton of issues. He spent most of his life as a passive husband, an absent father, and a horrible friend. That said, no one disliked him more than he disliked himself. But everything changed the night he happened to watch Thomas online. Something clicked and he knew what he had to do. He surrendered his miserable life to someone greater and he was forever changed. James fought hard to make up for the lost years with his family. And he also began working with young men who were in danger of throwing their lives away. One of those men was Nate. Nate didn't really know his own dad and he had no real direction in life ultimately bouncing from one bad decision to another. Because of that, he often found himself in trouble with the law. No one had ever showed him what it looked like to be a real man. That is, until he met James. James became the first father figure Nate ever had. He learned about honesty, self-control, humility, and integrity, and where those traits come from. Two months later, Nate publicly declared his belief in Christ. And of course, James was there. Now you can see the connection. Nate was impacted by James. He was influenced by Thomas. Thomas saw an uncommon joy in Lisa, who learned of Jesus from Kim. Kim's relationship with God eventually led to Nate's. Funny how these two people have never met and never will. So I love that story because that's repeated exponentially throughout church history. You know, there's a lot of great books out there about, uh, you know, people who you know, kind of share their story and how they, they didn't know, you know, exactly how this person came to faith. But when you really start digging deeper, you find that, that you, they told somebody who told somebody who influenced somebody just like we just saw. But that's only possible if we're authentic. And you know, what convicted me as I watched that video is, is knowing that, you know, at Not By Works Ministries, we have a lot of a presence online. And, you know, I, I, I want to always strive to be authentic when I'm speaking or podcasting or whatever we're doing, not just kind of phoning it in and just doing the next thing, because you never know how God's going to use that. And, and God can hit a home run with a crooked stick. We know that. And thankfully, he still uses us even when we're not really zoned in and 
focused and trying to be genuine and authentic. Uh, and we're thankful for that. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And as we continue our journey through Acts and this uh, historical review of the early church, I want to take a look at Paul as an example of what authenticity really looks like. It's early September, A.D. 51. Paul is leaving Corinth, like we talked about last week, after spending a year and a half there. And his second journey, missionary journey with Silas, is beginning to wind down. Within two months, he'll be back at his home church in Antioch giving a report. But before going home, he makes a short stop in Ephesus. Uh, on his third journey, he's going to spend two and a half years in Ephesus. You think 18 months was a long time, but on his third journey, he goes back to Ephesus and spends two and a half years there. But he makes a short stop there on his way home on this second journey. And then he also makes a quick side trip uh, to the mothership in Jerusalem to visit uh, there. But he had attempted to reach the province of Asia earlier, but as we read about in chapter 16, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit from going there. But this time, the Lord permitted him to go there, but from the west rather than from the east. So as we turn to Acts chapter 18, I want to read uh, just a, a portion of that. We left off in verse 11 last week. We're going to focus on verse 18, starting in verse 18 this week. But let me read the section in between just for context. It says, he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is in Corinth, verse 11. Verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. That's the Bema seat that we talked about in our 9 o'clock hour uh, in, in the Bible study hour. And they were saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the laws. These were unbelieving Jews that were frustrated that Paul was preaching the free grace of God, salvation by grace through faith alone. And so that what did they do? They started complaining. They brought him to the, the Greek uh, court system, if you will, that town square raised platform called the Bema seat where this proconsul uh, Gallio was sitting to help solve disputes. And so when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, this is a Greek, uh, you know, a Roman leader speaking to the Jewish people, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge in such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Now, we don't know if this is a co-ruler with Gallio. We saw earlier in Acts how sometimes there were more than one ruler of the synagogue, or if he was the one who replaced uh, Gallio. Sometimes they would still refer to the ruler of uh, the uh, uh, you know, uh, synagogue by the name of the predecessor just because he was so famous. But all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. So this is an example where, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Greeks who were there at the trial were kind of emboldened by Gallio's impatience with the Jews. And so they vented their own anti-Semitic feelings toward uh, these Jews. And they specifically pulled Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, uh, out. And they beat him, you know, beat him right there. But notice verse 17, Gallio took no notice of these things. So we're beginning to see in the progression of the church now nearly 20 years 
into the church age, how the, the Romans were beginning to be more tolerant of Christianity. And this would continue throughout the Christian empire up until 64 AD when uh, Rome was burned. Remember uh, the Roman emperor Nero fiddled while Rome burned and then and he blamed it crazy Nero blamed that on the Jews and then he turned his torment on the Jews and that's when things really heated up and the martyrdom and persecution really intensified but for this season it seems like Rome was sort of tired of kind of playing the middleman between Jew, unbelieving Jews and, and Christians or members of the way as it were um, by the way this may have also been why Paul seven years later would have felt comfortable appealing to Caesar when he was in prison. We read about this in Acts chapter 25 uh, because he had kind of seen how the, there was just a shifting of the tide a little bit there in the way the Romans were, were treating the Jews. So, so they beat up Sosthenes. Gallio doesn't care. And then it says in verse 18, So Paul remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. We'll come back to that. And he came to Ephesus, left them there, Priscilla and Aquila, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And we do know that he did, in fact, uh, God was willing that he return back to them, and he did on the next journey. Verse 22, And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. So how did Paul demonstrate authenticity? I think there were four ways that we can see in these five short verses. Number one was through purpose. The first characteristic of an authentic Paul was that he had a single-minded purpose. He had a reason to live. He knew what his purpose was. He was intentional about everything that he did. Now, we might sit back and say, well, that's understandable given his life's journey. I mean, here was a guy that was the worst persecutor of the church, hated Christians, murdered Christians, until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then this murderer Saul became the Apostle Paul, and so, you know, you might think, well, if I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, or if I had this bright light experience or whatever, then I might have a pretty single-minded purpose too. Well, the fact is we have had that. If you've been saved from the penalty of sin by God's grace, uh, as Mike prayed about in his prayer a moment ago, then you have had that Damascus road experience. But nevertheless, we do understand that, you know, Paul's circumstance was a little different, and maybe that's why he had purpose. But let's see how he modeled it. If you look in verse 18, which we just read, uh, Paul had taken a, a Nazarite vow. We don't know when he took this vow. Luke doesn't tell us. Luke, the narrator here. Uh, maybe it was near the beginning of this lengthy stay in Corinth in response to that vision that we talked about last week. But he took a Nazarite vow, and that's a vow which was optional for Jews, but it involved, among other things, leaving one's hair uncut. And uh, Jews took vows, according to Leviticus, either to get something from God or because they had given something to God. But it was a common way of just showing dedication. And then at the end of the vow, of the Nazarite vow, the person who had made it would cut his hair and offer that hair as a burnt offering along with a sacrifice on the altar in Jerusalem. And since Paul was leaving Corinth, he had fulfilled his vow. 
And the time had come to cut his hair. And so he was headed to Jerusalem, and that would be a good opportunity for him to present his hair in fulfillment of the vow as an offering in the temple. Now, a lot of people suggest, and we talked about this some weeks ago when, when Paul had Timothy circumcised, that this was hypocritical for Paul, who had talked so much about grace and said you shouldn't be legalistic and you shouldn't put yourself under the law. But that's not the point. This wasn't a law. This was totally optional. This wasn't some legalistic requirement of Judaism. Paul felt compelled to take a vow, and uh, he wasn't compelling others to take that vow. It was between him and the Lord. It showed his single-minded purpose. He did it voluntarily and willingly. And by the way, that's what grace does. When we understand grace, it gives us the freedom to follow the Spirit's leading so long as it doesn't violate God's moral law. So he wasn't lording it over other people or you know, trying to convince other people to do it or saying that it made him more spiritual. It was... It was an opportunity for him to live out his single-minded purpose. And it showed his authenticity because he didn't worry about what others might say or think about him. The vow was between him and God. In other words, he was being real in his relationship with God. He was acting with purpose. He was acting with intentionality. You know, it's hard for us to, to do that because the sin nature is so pervasive uh, and it's hard for us to do anything with a pure motive um, but have you ever been in a situation where you felt the Lord calling you to do something and you just said I don't care what people think I don't care what it looks like this is between me and the Lord and I'm just going to do it that's kind of what Paul was doing there and he had previously stated that in purpose his purpose in life was to serve God not men remember in his first letter that he wrote right after his first journey before he and Silas left on the second journey he wrote back to the Galatians and he said, look, I'm not trying to please men. If I was still pleasing men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. <laughs> because the mobs of unbelievers that were anti-Christians, they were egging Paul on, or Saul, the old Paul, to kill Christians. If I was trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Now We know this purpose was still on Paul's mind two years later as he sits in Corinth where we're reading about today, it's because while he was in Corinth, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. That during this 18-month period, Paul is writing his next two epistles under the inspiration of the Spirit, First and Second Thessalonians. And look what he said in First Thessalonians: As we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. We talked about the counsels of the heart in our first hour this morning and how important it is to do things with a pure motive. Uh, it's really the Lord that tests uh, the heart. Uh, but it's interesting that in his first two books of the Bible that he wrote, his first two letters, chronologically, Galatians and now 1 Thessalonians, he talks about not pleasing men. I think that's one of the biggest struggles that uh, we have is what do others think? Uh, elsewhere, Paul applies this, this principle of single-minded purpose to all believers when he said in Ephesians, one of his prison epistles written, by now he's been back to Ephesus, spent two and a half years there, and he says, be obedient in sincerity of heart. In other words, authenticity. Not as men-pleasers, but doing the will of God from the heart, and with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Authenticity means living with purpose. An authentic believer lives his life with single-minded devotion to God. 
He cares more about what God thinks than what others think. And this is growing more and more difficult in this age where perception trumps reality. People are more focused on appearance than substance. But the call to authenticity is a call to ignore social pressures and purpose in our hearts to serve God first. So Paul leaves Corinth and he heads to Ephesus. He stays there just a few days. He preaches in the synagogue, as was his custom. And then he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he moves on toward Syria. And that's where we see the next mark of authenticity, and that is Paul's priorities. When you know your purpose for life, then it makes it easier to prioritize things, to establish priorities in your life. When you think about it, life is all about priorities. How do we spend our time? How do we interact with others? Where do we focus our energy? All of this shows what we value. What are our priorities? Paul was not like a straw in the wind being pulled every which way. He knew his priorities. And that's the reason we read in verse 20, when they asked him to stay a little longer, he did not consent. You know, the Ephesians wanted him to stick around. But Paul knew what his priorities were. This wasn't the right time. Later he would have lots of time with them as the Lord leads, but not now. He didn't consent because his priority was to go to Jerusalem, complete the final phase of his vow, and then move on back to Antioch and give a report of all that the Lord had done on this second missionary journey. Priorities. Reminds me of what Joshua told the children of Israel at the end of Joshua's life, kind of his pep talk, his parting words, he says, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose you this day, New King James says, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So priorities are a daily matter. You want to be authentic? Know your priorities. Know your priorities. Authentic Christians are not whimsical or reactionary. They prioritize life around the single purpose of giving glory to God. And then the third mark of authenticity is perspective. Perspective. Authentic Christianity has a perspective that is completely unlike anything the world has to offer. Polar opposites. Authenticity means understanding this world and our lives within it through the lens of our Creator and His revealed Word in Scripture. Authentic Christians know that this world is not our home, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we're just passing through, that life is about more than what you can see and feel and hear. Authentic Christians always have an awareness of God and His plan for life in the forefront of their minds. He's not an afterthought. He's not something that you just think about on Sundays. He's central perspective. And this was certainly true of Paul. Notice again what he said when he left Ephesus, I will return again to you, God willing. It occurs to me, we don't say that phrase enough. <laughs> you know, I think it, it, it can be oversaid. It can be one of those sort of colloquial Christian things that we just say without thinking it, in, you know, instinctively. But also at the same time, I don't think we say it enough. I know I don't. I don't think it enough. Those two simple words, God willing. It's actually two words in Greek also. It's theos, God, and then thelo. Thelo is the Greek word. It means to desire or will or intend. It's used quite often 
in the New Testament over 200 times. But what Paul was saying is that he would return again to Ephesus if that's what God desires or intends. In other words, his perspective was, God, what's your role in this? He could have flippantly said, oh, here, let me get out my day timer. So is my age. We don't have day timers anymore. Let me, let me get out my iPhone and check my calendar, right? And, and, uh, and let's, uh, you know, let me see. I, I can't stay now because i got to get to Jerusalem, but let me, can I pencil you in for October? He could have done that. But he said, no, no, it's up to the Lord. Lord willing, I'll come back. Lord willing, I'll come back. Perspective. We go back to verse 21. He said, I will return again to you, God willing. I have to leave you for now, priorities that we just talked about. But I'll come back if that's what God wants. Do you see Paul's perspective here? He's always sensitive to God's presence and God's will. In chapter 17, Remember what Paul said in his sermon to the Athenian philosophers? Seek the Lord, he said, for in Him we live and move and have our being. He's central. It's all about perspective. Paul told the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians, he said, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. How often do you think about the heavenly perspective? How often do you think about the Lord Jesus sitting in, at the throne of waiting, I call it. Waiting for what? To come back and rescue us from this present evil age, Galatians 1.4. Waiting to come get us at the rapture. How often do you set your mind on things above, not on things on earth? It's all about perspective. And authentic Christians are always thinking about God. Keeping everything in perspective. But then finally, we see in Paul a passion for others. A passion for others. He was highly relational. Kind of like the lady we saw at the beginning of the video. He cared about others. He cared about them with the same degree of passion that characterized the hatred that he had for Christians before he got saved. He was the kind of guy... That walked into a room with a smile and a hug and a how you doing. That's just who Paul was. And when he arrived in Caesarea, he couldn't wait to see his friends and fellow believers. We read in verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. So he first went to Jerusalem to fulfill his vow. But then he went back down to Antioch. In my mind, I, I picture... Paul torn between heading straight for Syrian Antioch so that he could greet his friends at his home church that he had not seen in 31 months or heading to Jerusalem since he was so close and greeting his friends in the mothership. Paul had so many friends he didn't know which way to go because he was passionate about other people. And you see this coming through in his writing. Remember, Paul wrote Thessalonians from Corinth on his second missionary journey. And this idea of passion was on his mind. He said, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. He said in Romans, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. Later, uh, we, we read in Peter 
much later in the mid-60s, he said, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. This idea of passion is foundational to Christianity. Authenticity shows itself in a genuine passion for others. That's, what, that's really what we think of most, I think, when it comes to authenticity. You can kind of tell when you're talking to someone by the look in their eyes, their body language. Is this a real conversation or is this just a, you know, a trite answer? You know. Next time I go shopping and the, the, the checkout clerk says, uh, how you doing? I just want to, just to see what she would say, I want to say, well, you know, kind of having a bad day. I miss my mommy, and I wish I felt a little better. <laughs> to see what she says. You know? But what do we say, right? What do we say? We say, oh, fine, fine, you know, I'm fine, let's go, right? Now, hopefully, you know, uh, Brianna is, is kind of helping us kick off these uh, fellowship lunches. We have lots of fellowship around here. It's not like we don't fellowship, but this is going to be more intentional, an opportunity for us to break bread together and get to know each other. Uh, we've got a lot of new folks. We've got a lot of regular folks. Not that the new folks are irregular, but I don't know what the opposite of new is. I didn't want to say old because, you know, you're not that old. But uh, anyway, you see my point. We've got a lot of folks, and we need to have this type of opportunity to get to know one another and to, to, to have that genuine passion for others and that authenticity. Uh, because we're all in this together. We have the common bond of the Holy Spirit. We're part of the family of God. We talked about that recently when we looked in, I think it was in Acts 17, at in the world but not of it. And so uh, let's live like it. Let's, uh, since we're all on the same team, all part of this uh, same family, uh, let's have that kind of passion. So there are plenty of fakes in the world, plenty of half-hearted, going-through-the-motions Christians. What I think we see exemplified in Paul's life and then borne out in his epistles, doctrinally, is that authentic Christians have purpose. They have the right priorities. They have a heavenly perspective. And they're passionate. We need more authentic believers. So what's the takeaway? Be authentic. Be authentic. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just this short little passage in, in uh, the book of Acts that reminds us of Paul's real purpose and uh, just his temperament and the way he went from place to place. And we just get a glimpse uh, when we compare what happened in Acts to what he would later write at uh, really Paul's heart. And we see an authentic believer. And Lord, I pray that you would convict each of us in this room of the, of the uh, times when we're not being real and give us more opportunities uh, to be real. And Lord, we know that that authenticity begins uh, with that first initial step of faith by recognizing and, and openly admitting before a holy God that we are sinners in need of a Savior, being transparent, recognizing uh, that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves and acknowledging our sinful condition. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone listening to this message today that has not trusted in your Son and our Savior for eternal life, that today your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment and that they would respond transparently, recognizing they're a sinner and indeed place their faith in the only one that can forgive sin and give them eternal life. And that is 
Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we close.